Last week, Amazon accused FTC chair Lena Khan of being, quote, biased and their adversary in chief for years of research and advocacy and scholarship looking into whether or not Amazon and its business practices qualified as anti-competitive antitrust violations under United States federal law. Amazon has filed a petition with the FTC to demand that Lena Khan recuse herself and instead appoint someone for any antitrust investigations that will give the company a, a fair hearing and an open mind to its defenses, but why it is not a monopoly and why concentration of economic power by the company is a good thing for the United States. Tuning in here with me is a spokesperson from Amazon who we have reached out to to give a sort of a synopsis of what's going on here and, and what they're hoping to achieve with this petition. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 86 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, uh, you know, with the, with the news of, of, of Lena Khan being confirmed as um, chair of the Federal Trade Commission last month, I think that is, is, is time. I mean, we, we should have and could have done this way like long before Lena Chair was nominated, let alone confirmed as a commissioner for the FTC. And then Biden kind of uh, after the nom- after the confirmation, just kind of sneakily making her the chair as well, um, which which had conservatives up in arms about like this goes against uh, tradition and norms of decorum to 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 make her chair after her confirmation. But at any rate, uh, I think it's, it's, it's due time for us to actually dive into Lena Khan's ideas into, into, you know, now we've got someone in the, in the, in the chair position at the FTC, someone with a real position of regulatory authority and power who, you know, as I, as I, as I put it, you know, while, while reading a bunch of these, uh, a bunch of Lena Khan's papers, her you know her academic work, her law review work um, on questions of antitrust, on questions of governance, on questions of the the economics and politics of platforms and commerce, uh, it, it really struck me that this is a rare moment here where we've got someone in a in a real position of authority and power who also has a deeply critical, complex, and accurate analysis of the political economy of platforms like Amazon and the, the gov- and the tools of governance that can be used to crack down on them, while also actually having like useful, righteous, focused energy um, to do something about it. I mean, this 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 strikes me as a rare moment, right? And and so it's worth actually diving into 
the ideas of Lena Khan because she has ideas and she has really good ideas. Um, and, and, and they're a lot more complex and, and just frankly a lot better than a lot of the, the kind of shallow coverage of Lena Khan, um, even from her supporters, which, you know, haven't really, I think, done the work of actually understanding what is motivating Lena Khan's idea of antitrust, of commerce regulation, you know. And so I think what we want to do for this episode is uh, really give a primer uh, on, on what, what is Lena Khan thinking what's her analysis of platforms but then most importantly what's her what's her policy recommendations and solutions that she's proposed in her past work work that is not that old um so still very much you know things that she believes and 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 then you know how might that look like in her position as chair of FTC She's prolific. She's she's done a lot of work. She's written a lot of papers, a lot and a lot of really great papers, far beyond the paper that like kind of made her bones, made her name, the one paper everybody knows her for, which is the uh Amazon's antitrust paradox paper that came out in Yale uh Law Journal in 2017. But before that and since then, she has done a lot of really great work, which is super worth diving into and actually understanding um, because I, you know, I think we have an ally in a really high position of regulatory power. Uh, and, and that to me is something pretty exciting. Yeah, no, I would say so. I think um, as we go through, you know, and introduce y'all to, uh, to her thinking in this episode and others, I think one of the very, one of the more exciting parts of her analyses and her arguments um, by herself and in kind of collaboration with other scholars, you know, the attempt to constantly uh, reframe the modern antitrust consensus as a historical aberration, as a counter-revolutionary and revisionist interpretation, you know, a deviation from what antitrust has been understood to be, and linking it back to those original political uh, visions and then and and teasing out okay you know like if we follow and we just apply antitrust thinking as it has been understood to be for a long time we would understand it's not just supposed to be a you know purely looking at the outcomes of efficiency right but that it it sees markets it sees corporations as political institutions and thus its role is also to achieve certain outcomes or to you know, be leveraged in service of certain political or social or economic outcomes. You know, if markets and corporations are these institutions, then we need to be designing our society more so in ways where some of these things do and some of these things don't exist. And I think that's like, you know, that is a, that's in line with some of like the, the conclusions or some of the outgrowths of the thought that we advocate for, you know, especially with like the Luddite conception of political economy and how some things that exist don't need to exist and other things that do just because they exist do not have the privilege of being unscrutinized, right? But it's also really important in reframing this discussion so that it's not simply just about reforms, you know, and it's not simply about superficial changes, but deep, love, deep structural changes that 
conceivably and uh, permanently realter the way that the economy works, right? Or in conjunction with other moves, right? And, you know, Lena Khan, or, you know, so I guess we'll get the, you know, the biographical stuff out of the way. I think, you know, most of it, most of the coverage of her and her biography kind of centers on the same point. So we'll just kind of move through them quickly, right? So that we can talk about the ideas. You know, so she went to Williams College, graduated 2010, worked at the Open Markets Program when it was a part of the uh, New America Foundation, right? And from there, she was, from there, for, at there, she was, you know, a fellow. And then she worked uh, as a policy analyst there from 2011 to 2014, where she focused on political economy and antitrust law. The open markets period is significant because the open markets team, you know, touched on antitrust, touched on, you know, criticism of concentration of economic power and, and the way it distorted American political economy to such an extent that it was forcibly, you know, essentially forcibly spun off from the New America Foundation, right? And the reason why it spun off from the New America Foundation is, you know, that team, uh, the open markets team, after Khan had already left, though, in 2017, right, Google is uh, facing a massive fine from the EU. Uh, it's about uh, $2.7 billion or 2.4 billion euros at the time, right? Because it was preferencing or preferring its uh, its vertical search products, right? And these are just basically, you know, industry-specific search uh, products. So for restaurants, uh, for travel, you know, something that will specifically for a specific industry, uh, it was prioritizing these and demoting other competitors, right? Uh, demoting their rival products, demoting their comparison shopping services. And so this was a decision uh, handed down by uh, the European Commission's antitrust chief, uh, Margif Vestager, who we'll have to talk about at another point because she is, you know, the main antitrust official in the United, in the European Union. Um, she technically is on in the, the European Commission, which is the executive branch of the EU. We don't need to get into that right now. <laughs> uh, but basically, basically, you know, she ran point on this. Google's fined billions of dollars um, at the, you know, like maybe a few hours, four or five hours after this decision comes down. The director of the program, uh, Barry Lynn, the collaborator of uh, cons and has written stuff with her in the past before, you know, issued a statement because he's, you know, the director of the program, uh, praising the decision, right? Um, foolish decision, I guess, from the perspective of the people at the foundation, because <laughs> Eric Schmidt was a, uh, you know, CEO, chairman of Google, was a former chairman of New America Foundation until the year before. Uh, and through his family foundation, through Google, and through himself, had donated about $21 million to the New America Foundation since it was made, it was created in 1999, right? So what does Schmidt do? He complains about it to um, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's the president of the foundation. Mm-hmm. And then just like that, the statement disappears. And then it's reposted. And then a few days later... Right, and this article at the New York Times kind of lays out what happened and explains that Slaughter told Lynn that quote the time has come for open markets and new America to part ways, and that he was quote imperiling the institution as a whole. Right, so Lynn gets kicked out because of the pressure from there. Right, and 
spins out open markets institute to become like a more uh, you know vocal critic and opponent of the concentration of market power because one of the consequences of concentrated market power is you have a think tank that you're funding and you can throw out people if they criticize you, right? Mm-hmm. So Khan was at the open markets from 2011 to 2014. She works as a policy director for Zephyr Teach outside gubernatorial uh, campaign in New York. Goes to law school from 2014 to 2017, where she writes uh, like a dozen or more articles, academic papers, you know, panels, and, you know, that sort of thing, uh, furnishing um, a vision of antitrust as being restored to what it has been in the past versus the more recent model, which she dives into in various papers and we'll dive into a little bit later. You know, at various points, serves at one point a fellow in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, right? Uh, legal advisor to FTC Commissioner Rohit Chopra, legal director at the Open Markets Institute, fellow at Columbia Law School, professor at Columbia Law School, counsel of the House Judiciary Committee on Antitrust and Commercial and Administrative Law, which did the landmark report, um, that served as inspiration for a bunch of antitrust bills, but basically was investigating whether or not platforms were abusing their market power to crush independent sellers, independent businesses, small businesses, competitors, rivals, or, you know, in one way or another, acting anti-competitively. Just a, a wildly impressive CV, considering, yeah. as you know, and as many people, uh, uh, you know, many of her critics are want to point out, she's only 32, right? Um, so just a, a a wildly impressive CV for someone who's you know o- only thirty two, <laughs> only a little bit older than me. You know, some of us choose to become podcasters, and some of us choose to become the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. You know, diff- different paths for different folks. <laughs> you know what I learned the other day that Danny Glover, when he was in the first Lethal Weapon movie, and he kept saying. I'm getting too old for this shit. If he was 41 years old, I'm 41 years old. I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to really highlight that, that, you know, th- this is a wildly impressive CV. Um, and, 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 you know, a, a rapid rise and rightfully so for, for someone like Lena Khan. But, Right. So, so Ed's kind of laid out, uh, uh, you know, her positions over the last decade or so. Her policy writing and journalism on these kinds of issues of antitrust, um, on, on political governance and, le- and, and law and regulation, you know, they stretch back for, you know, to about to 2010 or so. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of, profiles that have come out about Lena Khan lately, you know, especially like this year when she was getting a lot of attention when she got nominated and then confirmed to the FTC, was made chair, uh, you know, have, have highlighted things like, you know, she, she wrote some articles um, you know, in, in the, in like 2013, 2012, around there for foreign policy and for Time magazine, um, explaining why, like, uh, you know, looking at the, the, 
the monopolies and anti-competitive behavior of candy sellers, right? Like, you know, I think really kind of showing this trend in her thinking about how like, you know, something like antitrust is no longer, as she talks about in her articles, just the purview of of technocrats and scholars, right? But rather something that is uh, deeply important and relevant for everyday life, right? So I think she, you know, quite smartly uses the example of, of Halloween candy as a way to kind of show that these issues of antitrust actually do affect us in our everyday life. And it's because of, uh, of these monopolies by these big you know, a handful of big candy sellers, why there's like, you know, you go, you go to the grocery store to buy your Halloween candy and uh, there seems to be an illusion of choice. But in reality, like every candy there is owned by uh, like one or two companies, right? So, you know, it's like Hershey's, Mars and Nestle, right? Like control the whole market. Um, and, and as she's explained, right, they orchestrate this oligopoly um, to erect barriers to entry for independent candy makers. Um, they create these kind of fees and pay large sums for shelf space at grocery stores, right? I, I think what's important here is that this is laying this foundation that kind of really starts motivating Lena Khan's whole approach to political law and to regulation that uh, uh, antitrust is no longer something that can only be left in the hands of the technocrats, but rather antitrust is a deeply important tool for democratic accountability of companies because the power and concentration of monopolies and oligopolies affect us at every aspect of our daily life, right? From, you know, whether it's the candy we buy at the grocery store or the e-commerce platforms we use to buy that candy. Right. And I think, so this, this line of thinking, you know, kind of runs through um, flashpoints and discussions and interviews with uh, her work for for years, right, after she graduates until she goes into law school, but also like the year that she goes into law school, she writes a pretty uh, impressive and instructive piece, I think, that is a really good sort of prefiguring of, you know, sort of her ideas, right? And she, so she co-writes a piece with, um, a, a legal article with um, Zephyr Teachout, whose campaign she ran policy side, or she ran the policy team for. Um, and so with Zephyr Teachout, the, the, she runs, she writes a, an article that's essentially, you know, they're arguing that, look, we need to understand markets as political structures. We, we think of them solely as economic. We think solely of uh, corporations as economic agents, but there are all these other dimensions to them. And if we don't have a clear view of what markets and what corporations actually are, we can't develop the right tools to regulate them, to limit them. And we can't also come up with a society in which they they have a role in our politics if we're going to decide that they exist, right? And th so they're arguing that markets are political because, you know, they're shaped by laws and decisions and because market power, but also because market power lets corporations shape what we can and can't do, right? And so they're, they're, they're trying to say, okay, look, market structure is inherently political. So we're going to map out a so, you know, taxonomy, right? 
we're going to document some of the ways. It's not an exhaustive taxonomy, but it's supposed to be a, a way to help people think about this more clearly. Uh, you know, a taxonomy that thinks about power and how political power is exercised in, uh, by corporations, right? And there's some, you know, broad categories that they work with, right? The ability to set po- policy, right? The ability to regulate markets, uh, the ability to tax. And then another category to develop called dominance, right? Which is, which describes all the other sorts of political impacts, right? What does it mean to the ability of a population or community to govern itself if most of the people who have political experience or the most people, uh, most people who have political experience are within a corporation, but a monopolistic corporation, right? So it's a small group of people as possible because that corporation as a monopoly is taking on more and more governance roles or more and more uh, political authority or more and more social authority in, in ways that, you know, uh, try to like zoom through later, right? But the but the argument there, right, is saying that all right, corporations they have power, they're political institutions, right? And they they claim authority for themselves, either to govern industries or to govern parts of society. And they also affect political institutions, right? And so if we want to check corporate power, right? especially concentrated corporate power, especially concentrated market corporate power or private power, you have to understand that this, this subsummation of private authority and, and private political power is a direct threat to you know, democracy, to democratic governance. So you need to develop sort of tools. And the tools that we can develop are specifically with antitrust, right? Because antitrust has historically been conceived of in that way is part of their argument too also, right? That people from the beginning of this country's founding have understood antitrust and anti-monopoly laws and authorities to be direct threats and checks to tyrannical private powers, right? And I've always seen it as a, as a, as a bludgeon, as a hammer, right? To, to beat against the skulls of plutocrats, of oligopolies, of, mono, of monopolies, right? Um, and then it's only recently with the ascent of Robert Bork, the ascent of, you know, ideas proposed by him and people like Richard Posner, these Chicago school theorists who say that the only concern of antitrust is efficiency, not political or social outcomes. Um, it's, it's only this recent aberration from the 60s to the 80s that has managed to shift to result in a, you know, sort of cascading wave that has robbed us of a, of a key tool of um, attacking uh, corporate power and of preventing them from undermining um, democratic politics in this country, right? This paper that Ed's talking about, which, you know, all props to Ed for, for digging into the archives here. Um, this paper that uh, Lena Khan co-authored with Zephyr Teachout is from 2014 um, in the, the Duke Journal of Constitutional Law and Public Policy. It's called Market Structure and Political Law, Taxonomy of Power. Throw links to all this in the episode description, of course. You know, that year 2014 is also the same year that Zephyr Teachout wrote uh, an article that 
you know, was really influential on me when I first read it, um, you know, uh, back in like 2016, 2015, something like that called neoliberal political law, uh, where Zephyr Teachout goes through um, a really deep analysis of the ideology motivating the judges on the Supreme Court, arguing, you know, in much the same way that uh, they they have been captured by this neoliberal political ideology that is concerned with the rights of consumers over the rights of citizens, concerned with questions of of, uh, of price theory, of uh, of uh, efficient market hypothesis, right? Um, over these questions of what we would conceive of as more political questions, right? More political legal questions. There's like, you know, there, there's, I, I forget who, I forget who said it. Um, but the, you know, there, there was a legal scholar, uh, kind of talking about like the, the decisions made by a lot of these, you know, Supreme Court judges, but also, you know, high up judges in federal circuits, um, saying that a lot of their decisions read more like treaties on microeconomics, um, rather than treaties on constitutional law, right? Because they've been, they've been so captured by these, this Chicago school theorist, uh, of, uh, and, and this movement of law and economics by people like Richard Posner, people like Robert Bork, right? This has become the kind of common sense over the last uh, you know, 40 years or so, 40, 50 years, um, in political jurisprudence, um, and legal jurisprudence. And, uh, and this is what people like Zephyr teach out, Lena Khan, um, this kind of growing movement of, uh, what's called law and political economy now, um, is, is really trying to push back against, right? This is also people like, uh, you know, friend of the show, Marshall Steinbaum, um, Frank Pasquale, Salome Villune, uh, Amy Kapsinski, right? These are the kind of people who are really starting to try to push back that, no, we need the, the, we need to re reject this neoliberal, uh, co legal common sense and instead replace it again with a more, uh, economic, structural and, and political analysis of, the purpose of law and regulation and jurisprudence. Right. That the plan, like it, I think it just, it's, it makes sense that we, if we're really, if, and this is an insider point that they make a little bit later that, you know, like you can, if you, if you really believe in markets, you can have markets. None of this is none of these reforms are necessarily antithetical to markets. What they're antithetical to is the ability of power that is occurred in the marketplace to then bleed into the rest of society and organize how we live our lives. And that you should not have the ability to set policy or regulate yourself or tax people just because you have a preponderance of economic power or market power, right? And I mean, that, I think that comes through like, you know, in their taxonomy, right? They, you know, they, they explain that, you know, the taxonomy is also not to say those categories to you know, set policy, to regulate, to tax. These are not all like explicitly political, but it is the case that when you are a large company um, in an uncompetitive market and you, you know, you can pursue strategies 
that give you power on par with the government, right? You can pursue these non-market strategies, they call them, right? That, that allow you to exert power beyond economics and in ways that have political and social dimensions, right? You're, because you're creating and you're distributing value, right? A bunch of people, whether they're other companies, whether they're regulators, whether they're public people and public figures, um, whether they're pol- you know formal bodies, whatever they are, will try to influence your the corporation. So it goes to the analysis, right? Because it is again able to create or distribute value, right? You're able to produce things, able to distribute things, um, and so as a result, companies are going to try to respond in one way or another, so that. The, the influence that people have on them is minimized and limited, or if it is allowed to persist, it doesn't deter from the core profit uh, pursuing activity, right? So they'll set policy, right? And this comes from campaign funding, from staffing and recruiting government officials, by creating information that informs regulatory or deregulatory environments, right? That even goes so far as to direct or limit the political choices of employees or suppliers, right? And you can do that by threatening retaliation if they speak up or if they protest or threatening to fire them if they, you know, if a certain outcome happens, right? If the wrong person wins presidency, then you're just going to dissolve the firm, take your money elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And you can, and there are also other ways, you know, by being too big to fail, you know, uh, this is, we talked about this also, the, uh, and interestingly enough, this manifested with uh, BlackRock, right? By being too large, or, you know, BlackRock escaped the signifier of being too big to fail because it comes with regulations that not only put uh, responsibility, they put responsibilities on a firm if it's too big to fail because firms that are integral to an economy, uh, whether it's a local, regional, or national one, can make threats and demands of the government based on the uh, the implicit threat that if they fail, things are going to go to shit. Or if things get too tough, that they'll just lay off a bunch of workers and make people uh, you know, dro- drop into poverty. Right. The so-called uh, SIFI designation, systemically important financial institution, right? Right. Um, which... Yeah, I mean, and, and we and we can start getting more into this as well, but this is something as well that Lena Khan is really starting to try to revive as well, is that uh, we need to not only uh, revive this designation, but expand it. You know, companies like Amazon, for example, should be seen as, you know, too big to fail, systemically important, and therefore regulated as such. Before we get uh, much further on in this, uh, I, 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 you know, I think we have to give our disclaimers here, of course, right? Uh, our, 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 our Marxist and anarchist and radical <laughs> leftist disclaimers, um, cause you know, people are gonna, people are gonna wonder, hey, hey now, you, you guys pro market over there? You pro competition? <laughs> you, 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 you guys, you guys turning into some neo Brandeisians? Is this your right wing turn? <laughs> right. <laughs> the answer is no, obviously. Come on, come on. But it's worth saying, right, that like we here on TMK have all the standard 
Marxist, anarchist, radical leftist criticisms of reforms that are focused on market competition, consumer welfare, uh, right? None of us think that the neo-Brandeisians, as they're called, the people like Lena Khan, Tim Wu, Zephyr Teachout, are going to catalyze communism, right? Uh, they're not going to bring about the anarchist utopia. Um, but I think we have to set all that aside and understand that, you know, Khan actually and actively aims to make crucial, real material changes to the structure of the economy and the structures of power within the economy, right? And at the end of the day, you know, th this this is, I think, uh, helping to create the conditions of further, bigger, radical transformations to capitalist political economy um, and doing so more than, you know, almost anything else or anybody else is currently trying to do. And I think that has to be the whole name of the game here, right? Is to make real material changes, to create the conditions of prefigurative politics, right? Create the conditions where something better and bigger and more radical can actually happen. I had a really interesting kind of uh, Twitter conversation with Ben Tarnoff, who's editor of Logic Magazine, you know, really attuned to these ideas as well, where he was like, how do you see her creating the conditions for these radical transformations? I think it becomes clear if you actually read her paper on Amazon's antitrust paradox, if you actually read her paper on um, the separations of platform and commerce, if you read these papers that she's written, it becomes clear that what she's trying to do is uh, create new or revive existing tools and rules of governance that are crucial for taking power away from companies like Amazon, preventing them from building power. She is also very explicit about uh, you know, the need to provide exemptions to so-called collusion rules that allow for workers to organize because currently a lot of labor organization is cracked down on as collusion, right? Collusion by workers against the bosses, right? right. Antitrust right. has been perverted as an anti-worker regulation. Lena Khan is not only... Go ahead, Ed. No, I was going to say, like, for example, with Uber and Lyft, you can't unionize independent contractors because it's an antitrust violation and they're price fixing. Right. And Lena Khan not only recognizes that this is what's happening, she recognizes that this is absurd. And she recognizes that the purpose of antitrust must be to empower workers, right? In addition to taking power away from um, large companies. And she's also doing things like seeking to revive uh, approaches to regulation of monopolies as political utilities, seeking to expand um, separation doctrine um, to companies like Amazon, right? Separation, for example, that like financial institutions cannot be at once a, a, a bank and a banking institution and an investing institution, right? Because that creates this kind of conflict of interest. It creates um, a concentration, this vertical integration, right? So she's trying to expand these rules as well. These are all Khan's explicit aims here. Now, of course, I, you know, I, I, I agree with 
with Ben Tar- with Ben Tarnuff. I agree with the radical uh, critiques here that you know, as Ben tweeted at me, and I think it's just worth quoting, right? But my position towards new Brandeisians like Wu and Khan remains one of critical support with an emphasis on critical. Their main aim, as reflected in the EO and in the House Antitrust Package, um, the EO, the executive order, is to promote competition. And ultimately, I don't think competition is the solution. We agree here, right? We agree. Competition is not the solution here um, at all. But I, I also think that we are at a point, as TMK has, has uh, doggedly laid out, we are at a point where the version of capitalism that currently exists is awful. Truly, truly awful. And at the very least, uh, uh, Lena Khan is setting about to create a, a, a far better in real material ways um, for our lives, for building power, um, version of capitalism than the one that we are currently dealing with. And it's not only a far better one, but it's one that uh, I think through the reforms that she's setting out and through the, the thought, um, her, her political legal thought that we'll lay out here, um, does create conditions for more radical changes. They are not themselves the solutions, but rather they are necessary steps along the way towards something better. So I, I agree. Critical support for Khan. Um, but as I also tweeted at, at, at Ben as well, I'm, I, I am personally glad. And in reading her papers, I got really excited to be able to critically support her rather than once again have to vehemently oppose yet another person <laughs> in another position of power. Right. I, right. I think at this point, it is uh it feels utopian to be able to say I critically support this person than have to sit here and tell you all why they're a fucking ghoul and one and another awful, terrible person, right? Yeah, no doom no doom pills this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild that we're at that point that it feels amazing to be able to say, I critically support this person <laughs> rather than having to be here and be like, God damn it, fuck shit, Ed, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it is fun to see people lose their shit about uh, her as well, which I think yeah. is like, you know. And and going to your point, you know, that I think, you know, building on that, like also like it is important to note that, you know, for us to for us to get to the point where we can have the society and the political economy want, we also have to recognize how there's a bunch a, a lot of the bear there are multiple groups of barriers, right? There's immediate barrier just being the fact that we live in a capitalist society and the core and the, the capitalist core, you know, at the center and the heart of the most powerful empire to ever exist. That puts its own barriers in it. It's a politically broken uh, system that, you know, masquerades as a democracy, you know, this and that and that. There's also just the fact that there have been within the country itself, right, a series of revisionist and counter-revolutionary movements that have locked away or withered or undermined the institutions that we could use as scaffolding to root out, disrupt, um, contain, or 
transform other parts of the society, right? And then there's also the fact that we also have like large barriers, whether it's the constitution, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether it's just the, the way in which the, the courts play this or that role in, in, in review of these cases or in the president of antitrust cases, so on and so forth. We have a lot of barriers to getting to the point where we'll be able to then start actually debating the sort of things that we need to to restructure the society, right? And so, but a lot of these reforms that are being advocated by our uh, Khan go along that line of thinking, right? When Khan is in do, fleshing out this taxonomy of power and thinking about when when is anti-competitive behavior giving corporation the ability to to set policy or to regulate itself or to tax people or to undermine the ability of people to you know, govern themselves, right? That is also necessary so that we can figure out how to design a, to, to design a system in the interregnum on the path there that does not uh, repeat those same fucking mistakes or is not prey to the same sort of corruptive influence from these revisionists and reactionaries. And similarly, I think like the effort to say or to argue that antitrust and anti-monopoly laws are important, right? That Thomas Jefferson was advocating, you know, in one part of the paper, adv- talking about how Thomas Jefferson was advocating uh, for a for an anti-monopoly provision in the Bill of Rights that was supposed to be at the same level as the First Amendment, right? Or that, like the Sherman Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act and the Clayton Act, were all seen as like bl- like as as blunt force weapons that were going to be used to protect liberty. Right, because monopolies were seen as the enemy, the enemy of political politics, of democratic politics, right, of individual liberty, right, and of autonomy of the collective population, of uh, the stability of the country, the perpetuity of the institutions, of our institutions, I think, is how one senator put it, or how one congressman put it in in the House Committee report on the Clayton Act, right? I mean, these are... Like that history in of itself also serves purpose, uh, purpose illuminating and also like on the scholarship role, illuminating that I think it is pretty safe to say, right, that the core or early part of Khan's arguments and ideas are that like the, the antitrust arguments that she advocates for may seem pretty radical to us, structural separation. Right, for example, as we'll talk about a little bit later, but that they're actually they just are just a res- they only would em- they would emerge if we just simply read the law and applied it as needed to be, and that the reason that we don't is because of this counter-revolutionary aberration that has emerged in the '60s and has plagued us ever since, which has served as a as a shield for capital, right? and a shield for corporate power, and a shield for concentration, a shield for monopolies and oligopolies and monopsonies, and all manner of anti-competitive and collusionary and conspiratorial behavior among firms, right? That has given them more power uh, to transfer wealth from, from consumers, from public, from the public, from suppliers, that has given them more power to make themselves sovereign, right? And to make themselves... Um, more entrenched in the political economy so that there's less of a reason to disrupt them. There's less 
there's less momentum, there's less, uh, there's less ability, there's less interest in doing so, right? I mean, all of this needs to be upended if there's any hope of changing the country, right? Just uh, because it's both changing the mind and then changing the literal institutions, right? Like, for example, right, one of the biggest barriers to this country being a real democracy, right, and one of the biggest barriers to real changes are ultimately the Constitution, or ultimately in, in institutions like the Senate or the Supreme Court. And I can say that as much as I want, and nothing is going to happen, right? Because one, because people's mind, most people don't believe that and think that that's a ridiculous or, or reactionary or revisionist or what have you position, right? And so there's not there's not any sort of consensus or imagination around it, except in you know the the radicals who who believe in it, and also because there's not there's not ways to think about okay if that's the case, then what other parts of the society, do we have to throw away or toss away with it? And then also what would fill that place and replace it? And also, like, how do you even go about doing that process in the first place? All of this is locked behind the the opposition to it and the belief that that position is the radical one. And similarly with with this with this history, this revisionist history, I guess, or this attempt to paint American history as one that's inherently antitrust or anti-monopolistic, um, is an attempt to say, look, like the real radicals are not the Brandeisians, right? They're not the people who follow um, Thurnold Arnold's um, uh, political philosophy about antitrust. They're not the ones who want to fully use the FTC Act or the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act, you know, these 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 pieces of federal antitrust law to to achieve certain political, social, and economic outcomes, right? It's the, the real radicals are the ones who have tried to convince us that the only role of antitrust is in looking at the welfare of consumers, the efficiency at which they're receiving the goods or the services, the prices at which they're receiving them, and that any attempt to use antitrust uh, to do so is problematic, right? I think of like Hal Singer who wrote um, he wrote a piece in the American Prospect uh, early this year talking about uh, how antitrust could address racial inequalities, right? Partly a response to Obama administration and Obama era antitrust officials who were whining pretty much that uh, doing so would politicize antitrust, right? <laughs> but, you know, one of the er- one of the points of this paper by Khan and Zephyr Teachout from 20, uh, 2014, right? from seven years ago is that it's you're not politicizing antitrust and and to frame it that way is kind of stupid because markets are political right markets mm-hmm. are political structures uh, the factors that lead to corporate exercises of political power right they're connected to company size they're connected to market concentration they that is what allows a company to have to wield political power and authority and that the degree to which we let them have it on their own without real rules and tools to shape it ourselves and design it ourselves is the degree to which we say, okay, you're going to be allowed to decide what role elections are going to serve um, in your own non-market strategies. You're allowed to determine the degree to which you capture the regulatory and information environments. You're allowed to determine uh, who you employ and what political beliefs they have, you're allowed to determine the degree to which communities and, and, and 
supply chains, right? And, and, and other groups and other actors and other organizations are reliant on you. You're allowed to structure the markets. You're allowed to tax people, right? Once you see that all these forms of power are parts of, are uh, consequences of the structure of a market, right? Then you understand that using antitrust and as a way to remedy them, to alter them, to redesign them, to prohibit some and not others is not is not some inherently illegal, illegitimate, immoral, beyond the pale thing, but necessary, right? Because we don't, we have a huge vacuum that doesn't do that in the first place, right? We have, because we have decided that political issues are political issues and economic issues are economic issues, we don't have any concept or we don't have a desire, interest, or curiosity about the way in which the political economy causes them to overlap, Speak on it. Speak on it, Todd Cat. <laughs> well, you know, because we don't, because of this, right? We have, we have a, you know, as they write near the end of the paper, this, this situation leads to an extensive examination of rules governing one set of political actors and almost no examination of the rules governing another. It is clear, however, that the market structure in which corporations act crucially shapes the polity, as well as the ability of citizens to govern themselves. If the only problem we guard against is lobbying and campaign donations, we will have a democracy protected from one exercise of private economic power bribery, but not from the other ways in which corporations wield power, either to influence government or to govern us. And in light of this, the goal of this article is modest, to encourage political reformers to view market structure as a site for governance. Like other political tools and institutions, such as elections and Congress, market structure can be designed in a way that promotes democracy or that undercuts it. And I think from there, we can open up because a lot of Lena Khan's work in this light is concerned intimately with designing markets, right? We've talked a little bit about some of the socialist constructivists, constructionists who want to design, right, markets or plan them, but in a different way. They want to plan the production. They want to plan uh, the consumption of things, right? We're, and I think Lena Khan is more concerned with how are you going to plan, you know, the political institutions if we're going to accept that markets are political structures, which I think you know convincingly argues in this first paper that she does. She does. If you're going to, you know, think of them as political, then how are we going to design them? How are we going to design the rules in which they play? How are we going to design the sizes that are okay? How are we going to design the structures that are okay? How are we going to design what is not okay also and why it's not okay and how it connects to the values, whatever values the society is supposed to have, right? Because it should be, if the society, as they argue, right, if you value democratic governance, if you value self-governance, if you value the political autonomy and freedom and liberty and, and all that nice stuff, the you know Americans will you know spit out to you verbatim, you know, uh, like uh, you know just print it out immediately, right? If you value all of that, then it does not make any sense why you would allow corporations to just operate on their own with minimal regulation, designing the markets and wielding political power, mm-hmm. and instead why you would not actually plan the way that these structures are built.
Nancy's trying to take my place as uh, as the uh, the crier on the podcast. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that's that's actually the sound of the Wall Street Journal editorial board um, <laughs> crying in the background because we're talking about Lena Khan here. <laughs> that's the sound of Bezos crying. <laughs> Shout out to the Wall Street Journal, actually though, for shitting their pants very publicly in like one of the most cowardly ways, right? Oh, crying about the FTC got rid of, um, got rid of a, a rule that was implemented under Obama that was honestly stood in the way of actually challenging and pursuing mergers or pursuing anti competitive practices and spent the whole article saying that this was a power grab. But again, like as we just talked about, the real power grab is by the corporations, right? And by their ideologues and their, you know, by the, by the stenographers that have been masquerading as lawyers or as economists or scholars over the past 50 years, advocating for like the Borkian uh, model of antitrust, saying that you need to have a hands-off approach unless it deals with efficiency. Those, that's the real power grab. Mm-hmm. It's not a power grab if you say monopoly shouldn't exist and instead people, <laughs> you know, we should prioritize smaller businesses and smaller forms of or, uh, of enterprise, right? Yeah, I mean, talk about a, a real ghoul, a truly evil person, an evil soulless person here, Robert Bork, right? Robert Bork is, uh, you know, he he is really the 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 enemy uh, that that Lena Khan and Zephyr Teachout, um, you know, really set themselves up against in this kind of a. Uh, uh, revisiting of the purposes of antitrust law here, right? I mean, we we won't get super deep into Robert Bork and all and all of the kind of uh, you know uh, le- legal debates and and so on. But but suffice to say, just just quickly look up a, a picture of Robert Bork right now. <laughs> uh, you know, pause the, pause the podcast and lo- look up Robert Bork. This man. This man has no soul. <laughs> this man is trying to eat your soul. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it. Uh, uh, Robert Bork is a very uh, interesting and divisive figure himself um, and truly an abhorrent man uh, morally. Uh, but, you know, kind of you know, was, was, as we talked about at the top of the show, really influential in turning antitrust into what it has been for the last 50 years, which is one, uh, a kind of political, um, ideology that is, uh, you know, captured and controlled by corporate interests, right? Saying, you know, arguing, for example, that, um, actually consumers benefit from uh, things like corporate mergers, right? Actually things that are, uh, you know, seen as a, uh, anti-competitive or, or, you know, pro-competitive if you have this, uh, this theory, this price theory and this kind of uh, ideological adhesion to um, corporate power that the Chicago School of Law and Economics uh, supports and advocates for um, and has a very, very uh, shallow and and uh, and simple understanding of what consumer welfare is. 
ultimately, though, uh, it, it's also worth noting that Bork, you know, we, we, we narrowly missed a bullet with Bork, who was nominated oh, to the Supreme Court um, by Reagan and was uh, defeated in that nomination um, in what was up until the uh, nomination of Clarence Thomas uh, in the 90s, like the most divisive uh, he, you know, uh, confirmation hearing on the Senate floor um, for a Supreme Court justice. And, and then, you know, what did, what did Bork later go on to do, right? He, he wrote a book called uh, Slouching to Gomorrah, um, which was, or Slouching Towards Gomorrah, which was all about how ideas of, of, of quote unquote modern liberalism are uh, like a, a beast of decadence that's uh, ruining Western civilization and ruining um, America, right? All this kind of like typical yeah. bullshit, but truly a morally abhorrent man who did so much uh, to influence. It's also very interesting. A lot of the discussions of antitrust uh, or a lot of the discussions of his model, I mean, we talked about it here, but a lot of them just don't really mention his belief that i mean look liberalism when you know we have a different critique as leftists but the conservative critique is that it's just like you said just an immoral abomination that has made us worse as human beings and not like oh it's liberalism is not real right or is not being properly pursued or whatever in the, in the modern era right he, mm -hmm. he fervently believed it was a mistake, and that was poisoning the, the foundation of Judeo-Christian society. I mean, I don't know if he used those those words himself. I don't think he did, but um, that's that's low key the subtext in a lot of those arguments, right? Yeah, I mean, like pretty high key in Robert Bork's yeah. uh, writings, right? Pretty mm -hmm. high key. Uh, you know, my man Bork had a very, uh, just for for example, had a very uh, kind of rough relationship with the, uh, with racial segregation, right? Oh. <laughs> um, you oh. know, okay. uh, coming out in support of uh, the Brown v. School Board of Education, but not because he's like, you know, Racial segregation is is horrible and awful, um, but but jumping through these legal uh, loop, the, the, these legal hoops uh, to um, at once be like, I think it's actually all right, but but like I I, I guess I gotta agree with with the with the with the decision here. I mean. Yeah, I mean, look, he wanted to be on the Supreme Court. He knew that he couldn't oppose it. I mean, he did. I mean, he got shit for it in the hearing. That's part of why the hearing was a little contentious. Because um, mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, you probably got civil rights, maybe. I don't know. You oh, just got to yeah. appoint me and find out. <laughs> it's that economic uh, legal theory that's like, you know, everything that's bad in society will actually work itself out if you just allow the markets to work right like yeah, like racial segregation like yeah like racial segregation like you can't make it illegal um because that like stands in the rights of uh, of people's economic liberties to yeah. you know uh, uh segregate who they want to serve their lunch to or whatever right but yeah. because 
you know, if we believe in price theory and efficient markets, then, you know, uh, uh, lunch counters that don't allow black people to eat there, you know, they, they won't get as much business. And so, you know, other competitors will come in and, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, yeah. this is the kind of like, economic theory that motivates Borkian antitrust here is that uh, any kind of any kind of rules and regulations that stand in the way of a theory of efficient markets um, you know is actually what a, a distortion uh, yeah. to to the operation of the market and also a, a a barrier to you know to people's individual liberties and we just have to trust that uh, this stuff will work itself out because it's economically efficient to not do segregation. Which, yeah, you know, I mean, and it's and it's wild because it's like on the antitrust side, there's like a pretty, there's like a deep technical uh, backwater of uh, arguments about why all of this is fine. But at the end of the day, if you really, really, really squint and you read it, it's it's just vibes. It really comes down to vibes. You know, if you, if you, if you vibe it out, prices are going to be okay. If you vibe it out, goods are going to come on time and efficiently. And if you vibe it out, look, if people are being racist, it's because they can't afford to not be racist. I mean, not maybe, maybe not literally racist, maybe not literally afford it. Maybe it has too high of a cost in other markets that they can't quantify at the moment, but they'll, when, when they stop being racist, it's going to be because of the, you know, they vibed it out. Right. That is right. the that is the that is the philosophy at the root of everything here in one way or another. Yeah. I can surmise Borkian antitrust in four words. Hit me, hit me. Just trust the process. Yeah. <laughs> like the fucking seventy sixers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let's do what we haven't done yet uh, in this episode is give a little bit of a, an overview of Lena Khan's, you know, very famous paper of the Amazon's antitrust paradox. I think it's, you know, I think it's worth just kind of uh, for people who are unfamiliar with it. You know, it is a long law review paper, as law review papers out often are. But I will say Lena Khan has a real skill for, for very clear and fluent writing. Right. Like um, her, she lays out her her analysis um, with with such such clarity, uh, clarity of, of of critique and clarity of purpose. Um, so it's well worth reading her paper, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, as well as, you know, a lot of her papers that, uh, you know, we we've reviewed and read uh, in preparation for this this episode. And, and we will get more into in future episodes. I think this is really, you know, should should say again, we're just trying to give you a primer on the the, the thought of Lena Khan. Um, there's a lot more worth getting into a lot of really interesting stuff and a lot of stuff that um, I'm very uh, interested myself in seeing how it plays out um, in her role as FTC chair. So we will we will absolutely be revisiting this. We'll be revisiting some of the the B sides and uh, deep tracks of of Lena Khan's uh, work that you know doesn't get a lot of attention outside of her um, Amazon's antitrust paradox paper. But let's 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 
let's end the let's I think let's end the show by kind of quickly giving a, a, a an overview, a primer itself of of her arguments and her recommendations and why it's got people like Amazon and Bezos and the Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, just fucking losing their shit. Uh, in public, red, mad, and nude, posting online um, about why Lena Khan is, uh, uh, you know, the devil incarnate. Well, she so is. hit us, for, for <laughs> hit us, Ed. With um, let's start with what's her analysis of how uh, this kind of Borkian. Um, view of antitrust has allowed for a company like Amazon to grow and scale at such rapid pace without running up against any um, uh, anti-competitive regulations or any kind of uh, anti-monopoly action against it. And then mm-hmm. we can get into her her own recommendations, which I'm very uh, uh, excited to see her start playing out in the FTC uh, around things like predatory pricing, around things like um, vertical integrations and structural separation. So, what, right. what is what? How has Amazon escaped the regulation as a monopoly? Right. So there are two parts to why Amazon has been able to get the way it is. One is the literal strategy that Amazon has pursued. And then the other one is just the environment in which we live in, right? Or the regulatory and ideological environment we live in, right? So part one part is that, you know, Amazon is a massive, just a massive monopoly, right? It has operations. It has operations in retail, it has operations in advertising, in tech. It has a delivery system. It has a payment processor. It has a media empire. It has book publishing. It has um, it has uh, its own. Uh, you know, e- it has an e-commerce platform. It has the cloud computing platform. It has all sorts of operations that it constantly uses uh, to gain more insights into other operations to expand into them. Right. But there's also the fact that Amazon in its traditional commercial activities has chosen to forego uh, traditional uh, business strategy of, you know, choosing prices that achieve profits that it can then, uh, you know, by, uh, by choosing like larger prices that will achieve larger profits that will then get it to either give those in dividends back to the consumers or reinvest them into the company. Instead, it does below-cost pricing, right? And it does use this to loss lead, to undermine competitors, to cause vacuums in which it can fill, right? Or to force suppliers or vendors or other competitors into agreements with it. And it has also used that to grow rapidly to become like, you know, the infrastructure, market infrastructure, for uh, large swaths of the American economy. Um, but it has also done another nifty thing where it takes them, you know, the profits it does generate in its cloud computing services and other parts of its empire to subsidize that loss leading, right? And as a result, right, the very structure of the firm is we are going to act anti-competitive. The structure of the firm is such that we are going to act anti-competitively, right, so that we can become a monopoly, become the market, become the platform on which everything happens. This is pretty explicitly 
a violation of antitrust law. So why is it not just, why is antitrust law not being enforced? Well, part of it is because over, you know, thanks to Bork and his cohorts and his disciples, um, there has been a shift in antitrust law that has decided we're going to judge whether something is competitive or anti-competitive based on how it affects consumer welfare. And these are, you know, prices essentially, right? But prices are not, prices are for a multitude of reasons and have been criticized as such for by a multitude of people, right? As they're not, they're not complete pictures of what's actually going on in the marketplace. They don't convey all the information that's going on in a transaction. And they definitely do not communicate all the structural or the political economic, um, of you know dynamics that are going on when you get a price right a pr- low price does not communicate to you the predatory behavior that's going on it does not convey to you the harm that is going on to competition to come to other vendors it does not convey to you the dominance that amazon has right all the low price tells you is that you're getting a good at the level that makes it convenient for you right and so as a result, we have a Bork, you know, this Borkian ideological uh, fixture or, you know, environment makes it pretty hard to understand that the predatory pricing uh, strategy pursued by Amazon is actually anti-competitive because it's, it's, and that it, it, it results in a market structure, right? That is antithetical to what should be allowed to happen under antitrust law, right? And that furthermore, this ideology has created an environment in which now corporations, but specifically platforms on which commercial, uh, on which commerce happens, right, have an incentive to say that we should make this platform grow as large as possible. And the way to do that is to operate below cost anti-competitively, right, to price ourselves at levels that other competitors can't match, right, because the law is not going to be enforced. So if it's not going to be enforced, why would you limit yourself from using that tool? And it's also dangerous because like online platforms are increasingly over time playing larger and larger roles and and larger and larger swaths of the economy, right? And that the way that the these platforms operate, it's not simply that we are going onto these platforms to get things. It's that other businesses are going onto platforms to get goods or services, right? You know, it becomes the case that now a company that is engaging in anti-competitive behavior in, for example, cloud computing, as Amazon might be, is able to leverage that in competing with other vendors that need that cloud computing service so that they can operate or compete with Amazon in other parts of its business empire, right? And so what it is, means, okay, Amazon is growing because antitrust law isn't being enforced. Amazon is growing because it also has a specifically monopolistic business strategy, right? And the convergence of those is that because it's not being enforced and because it has this monopoly strategy that doesn't account for the predatory pricing and the vertical integration, the host of other strategies that it uses to grow, uh, Amazon is in a really good position as are other firms in really good positions to try to become the market, to become the platform on which commercial activity happens so that they can erect, you know, sort of walls around that around audiences, around consumers, around sections of the economy and demand, levies, taxes, you know, concessions and agreements to enter, 
and to operate with them. Yeah, I mean, companies like uh, Amazon and Walmart should be, you know, if they aren't already, uh, making sacrifices to, to, to Robert Bork, you know, rest in piss, uh, <laughs> you know, as a thank you. Because their entire business models are based on Bork's idea of if you do this, then you are not acting in a, a way that violates antitrust law, right? We can see it in the slogans, right? Walmart, everyday low prices. Amazon, Earth's most customer-centric company, right? The idea here is that through consumer welfare defined in a very narrow way as short-term price effects, then then you know they're not acting in any kind of monopolistic way or any kind of way that runs up against antitrust because you can go to Walmart and you can get low low prices on everyday goods you can go to Amazon you can get low prices on everyday goods right and as a consumer according to people like Robert Bork and Richard Posner uh, th- this is all that matters right this is all that matters is that you can go there and you can get low prices on everyday goods uh, again, though, but it's absurd to not think Walmart or Amazon are not massive monopolies and monopsonies at that as well, right? They have co- they have total dominance over both the supply and demand sides of the market. Um, but uh, because of the sacrifices they've made in the name of Robert Bork and the powers that that demon has granted them, um, <laughs> they are able to escape those regulations because they give you the consumer low prices on everyday goods. Right. Lena Khan argues aptly that this uh, ignores everything that's meaningful uh, about what the structures of political economy, of market dominance, and what it means to actually rein that in. As a result, right, the Amazon antitrust paper be you know set off a fire one because it's arguing pretty pretty concretely that we've been that antitrust that antitrust policy and antitrust law as it is conceived now is done the wrong way but also that it's done in such a bad way that we have left this massive threat develop and become the model to emulate among other firms right and that it has developed to such a point where it is entrenched and actually does have a monopoly or it does have a pretty clear antitrust um, violation going on where it's anti acting anti-competitively or is doing so because it has practices that have done so and because it has created structures and because there are incentives that push it to do so over time, right? I, I think as well, something of a point that came up, right? When you were explaining, um, you know, uh, Zephyr Teachout and Lena Khan's kind of taxonomy of power and, and you know, the, the ways in which corporations wield power. One of the things that you mentioned was the power to tax. It's like, how, how does a company have a power to tax? You know, the, the power to tax, that's, uh, that, that's unilaterally hold by, held by governments, right? That's like by definition what makes a government a government is that they're able to tax. So how does a company have power to tax? You know, so Lena Khan mentions this in 2014. And, uh, or, or Lena and Zephyr, you know, analyze this in 2014. And then, uh, you know, in the Amazon antitrust paradox paper, she quotes an anonymous, you know, billionaire venture capitalist. She says, quote, 
One might dismiss this phenomenon as irrational investor exuberance. And here she's talking about the ways in which uh, investors uh, pour a bunch of money into companies like Amazon and Uber, even though at that time they were not turning profits, right? They, they were just, you know, but they were growing. They were growing really fast. Um, but, you know, Lena goes on to say, but another way to read it uh, is at face value. The reason investors value Amazon and Uber so highly is because they believe these platforms will eventually generate huge returns. As one venture capitalist recently remarked, if he had to, quote, put his entire capital in a single company and hold it for the next 10 years, he would choose Amazon. Quote, I don't see any cleaner monopoly available to buy in the public markets right now. Uh, in other words, uh, that these platform companies uh, undertaking consistent steep losses and still generating strong investor backing suggests that the market or expect Amazon and Uber to recoup their losses. Um, this this anonymous venture capitalist uh, mentions how, you know, in the future, uh, all companies will eventually pay the, quote, Amazon tax, right? Do you know who that anonymous venture capitalist was? I looked it up. Chamath Palahapatiya. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, fucking course. <laughs> I couldn't unmute fast enough. That was, I, know, I was shouting before I hit the unmute button. <laughs> oh, yeah. my fucking God. It all you know, comes I've around never looked circle. it up. I've never looked it up. I just was like, they all fucking believe that. I never looked it up since I first read this paper. It was mm. Chamath Palahapatiya. Wow. It all comes around full circle. But yeah, I mean, I think that that is a that is a key example here of market dominance, right? Is this idea, and we are seeing it playing out in terms of Amazon's both e-commerce platform and the exorbitant rents that it pays to uh, third-party sellers there, or through its fulfillment by Amazon program, as well as with Amazon Web Services as the essential infrastructure of the internet, they are paying a tax to Amazon, right, for the use of uh, of this infrastructure and of this platform. Chamath Palahapatiya called it, you know, five years ago, six years ago. More evidence as well to why Amazon needs to be uh, broken up and the and and the ground needs to be salted so it cannot grow any uh, anymore. Nothing can grow in its place. Nothing will. <laughs> Hopefully. Let's end the episode by looking at Lena's recommendations here for how to reel in Amazon, right? So, so two, you know, these models for addressing platform power. She, she lays out two models, right? So um, one is uh, governing online platform markets through competition, right? And here she's really focusing on, on two key issues of predatory pricing and vertical integration. Now, you know, she, she talks about how you know, while predatory pricing technically remains illegal, it is extremely difficult to win predatory pricing claims because courts now require proof that the alleged predator would be able to raise prices and recoup its losses. 
revising predatory pricing doctrine to reflect the economics of platform markets where firms can sink money for years given unlimited investor backing would require abandoning the recoupment uh, requirement in cases of below cost pricing by dominant platforms and given that platforms are uniquely positioned to fund predation a competition based approach might also can consider introducing a and this is key a presumption of predation for dominant platforms found to be pricing products below cost this is a really uh, a, a, a kind of reversal whereas uh, Robert Bork, he argues through what uh, is called an error cost analysis, right? Is that Bork argues that the, the cost of erroneously bringing um, antitrust rules or competition regulations against companies who were not actually acting in anti-competitive ways, the, the cost there is greater, right? These false uh, these like these like false positives are greater than the than the other side, which is to uh, to to erroneously not bring um, uh, competition uh, regulation against companies that were actually acting in anti-competitive ways. Right? Why? Because you know, in short, it's it's again a price theory efficient market hypothesis bullshit. Right? It's that uh, you know. When the government steps in and cracks down, um, that chills the ability of entrepreneurs and businesses to self-regulate and self-govern themselves, right? Um, whereas if a company like Amazon or some other company is doing predatory pricing or, or price discrimination, then other competitors will step in and solve the problem by giving consumers a different choice, right? Blah, 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 all the stuff that we know. I think it's really interesting that uh, Lena Khan is advocating here for what she calls a presumption of predation. Not assuming that these companies are actually acting in the best interest of consumers and the economy and the whatever national interests, you know, whatever it is that you value, um, but instead assuming that these platforms are acting against those things and for their own interest and for their own profits, right? Which to me, there's a lot more empirical proof of that fact of a to support a presumption of predation than to support the theory uh, that Robert Bork puts forth. And this, this is actually a very interesting distinction here as well between people like Lena Khan and Robert Bork. Where, you know, the Chicago School, a bunch of theorists, right? They got theories about how markets operate, how prices operate, uh, and, th and then they, they advocate for rules and regulation and laws that uh, are based on that theory. Whereas Lena Khan's actually looking at the empirics of the case. She's doing right. materialist analysis of real material conditions and saying, this, this, ain't, this ain't holding up to your theory. We have to it's act according to the uh, empirical material reality, not the, not, not the reality that only exists in your, you, your soulless head. Folks, you heard it here first. She is a historical materialist. Kinda. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first.
So early in the essay, she defines vertical integration as uh, vertical integration arises on, quote, two or more successive stages of production and or distribution of a product are combined under the same control, right? And so typically, uh, vertical integration you know, is is raised as a concern. Well, it's not raised as a concern in the Chicago school because they say that it's pro-competitive, right? It, it That to have this sort of control allows then firms to like, you know, in one way or another focus on what it, what they do best, right? And then that allows firms to flourish a little bit more, right? Critics of vertical integration typically say that, all right, there are two places we need to look at for its harm. Right. There's leverage and there's foreclosure. There's a leverage, which is the idea that a firm could basically use its dominance in one line of business, right? To subsidize its entrance into another and then dominate, right? Because if you have horizontal power in, a, in, a, in one mar- market or one stage of a supply chain or one stage of production, that allows you to extend your power into another and to enter when you otherwise wouldn't, right? And so that makes it easier to. Uh, be anti-competitive in a way that you can't if you just had horizontal power, right? Foreclosure is another line of critique that people who are concerned with vertical integration usually focus on, right? And they'll hone in and they'll say that, look, like I, when a firm uses one of its business lines to disadvantage and, and, and do anti-competitive business practices against its rival and another, that's a huge concern that happens with vertical integration, right? The example in this paper is a flour mill that's also owned that also owned a, uh, a bakery could hike prices or degrade quality when selling to rival bakers or refuse to do business with them entirely, right? So even if the firm is integrated, even if an integrated firm, right, this vertically integrated firm does not resort to quote exclusionary tactics, the arrangement still increases the barriers to entry by requiring would-be entrants to compete at two levels. Right. And so Lena Khan points out that, you know, over time, vertical integration has become more and more and more okay. Right. That Bork in of himself argued that vertical integration was fine because it doesn't create forms of market power that firms would then use to hike prices or constrain output. And you have to remember that's the concern. The concern is efficiency and, and short term price effects. Right. And that when vertical integration did result in that, it could be disciplined by, quote, actual or potential entry of competitors, right? And so to Borg, antitrust law, you know, looking at vertical integration was irrational and it should encourage vertical mergers. Quote, the law against vertical mergers is merely a law against the creation of efficiency, right? So that is more or less like this uh, sort of, uh, this is like vertical integration is fine, right? Vertical integration can't really be addressed by any any trust as it is understood and addressed, right? Uh, because it believes that it's okay, believes that it uh, creates uh, efficiency, believes that it also doesn't undermine prices, right? So she lays out some suggestions, right? You could look at this by scrutinizing mergers that would enable firms to acquire valuable data and cross-leverage it, right? Or you can just do a ban on mergers that would give rise to conflicts of interest, right? And you can address these concerns by expressly including them in merger reviews, right? 
Current, as she writes, under the current approach, only mergers over a particular monetary threshold require agency review, yet the monetary value of a deal may not be a good proxy for the scope and scale of data at stake. Thus, it could make sense for agencies to automatically review any deal that involves certain exchange of certain forms or certain quantity of data. I think that's a good example and a good suggestion, right? Some of the examples she gives are Facebook's purchases of WhatsApp and Instagram, but also Uber's decision to sell uh, its China operations to Didi Chuang are two you know, prominent examples, right? Even, for example, um, an under-discussed part of that deal, which gave Uber a stake in its rival, Lyft, right? What kind of insights did Uber generate or gain, right? Uber's acquisition more recently, food um, delivery, food delivery company Postmates, because it already owns uh, Uber Eats, you know, would that be allowed, right? But there would be, a but she also says that there could be a stricter limit, right? You could just do prophylactic limits on vertical integration if they've reached a certain level of dominance, right? This would mean that we are saying, look, if you have involvement across multiple lines of business, that creates conflicts of interest, right? Because now you have an incentive to prioritize and privilege your own business and disadvantage other companies. This is, you know, you know, similar to what Google did at the top of the episode when we talked about that 2017 fine that got the $2.7 billion 20, uh, 2017 fine in the European Union because it was prioritizing its own uh, lines of business, specifically its own vertical search products, uh, as opposed to other price comparison um, tools, right? That is one of the main examples. You know, these are some of the main examples. In Amazon, though, this would mean that the company cannot run both a dominant retail platform and a dominant platform for third-party sellers, right? You have to separate the businesses and you have to spin them off because it can- if not, then it uses its insights um, from its role as a, quote, third-party host to benefit its retail business as it reportedly does now, right? There are, massive, there are long lists of stories from the House Judiciary Report to the Wall Street Journal talking to the New York Times talking about how Amazon has taken ideas from vendors and replicated them on on Amazon Basics, how it has taken ideas from startups to AWS and replicated them in its own startups, how it has used insights to try to figure out what firms to buy, crush, uh, you know, make agreements with lockout and exclude. You know, these are all concerns that are raised with vertical integration and that, you know, with Amazon as an example, Amazon, if we're looking at it through this lens of how do we minimize vertical integration, you would most likely have to just straight up spin off some of its operations, right? You cannot let one company uh, determine the standards of op- of business and market activity, right? Because it confers political power, as we said, because market structures are political structures, right? And so you'd have to force it to split its retail and market operations. You'd have to force it to probably spin off the word, restructure its media operations and its publishing operations, right? And its payment operations and its, and its auction house buying. I mean, like there's a host of things that are intertangled and need to be reviewed and designed and structured differently, but we're not there yet because the consensus around antitrust is an incredibly shallow one, which is what do the prices look like? You know, mm-hmm. show me the money. Is the money good or is the money bad?
I mean, I think this is a really good quick rundown of two approaches that she's given here with predatory pricing and vertical integration slash structural separation in terms of how to govern um, online markets through stronger stricter preemptive competition roles right i mean rules that again you know yeah we don't think that more competition is the solution but at the end of the day it's also quite clear that lena khan is not just concerned with competition as an end in itself and she talks about this quite explicitly right competition is a means towards reconfiguring uh, structures of power and dominance in uh, the economy and uh, of political influence that, that flow from that, right? I think that's what we have to keep in mind here as well. It's that Lena Khan is not just a competition ideologue, right? She's not just um, given the dogma of we need more competition, but rather she sees these as effective tools for doing bigger and better things, namely redistributing power uh, and taking power away from these companies and allowing power to be built and formed um, through workers and through citizens, right? Citizens conceived of as political entities, not citizens conceived of as neoliberal consumer subjects, right? Um, which is very much the common sense right now, the common sense that, that we... Lena Khan, Zephyr Teachout, many, many other uh, scholars in this burgeoning um, uh, law and political economy movement are, are, are really pushing back against. Mm -hmm. You know, we can, I don't, I don't think it's worth getting into too deeply right now at this point, but another aspect that she's really kind of looked at is a revival of, uh, uh, of governing dominant platforms as monopolies, but through regulating them as public utilities, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is also something, you know, that has uh, Amazon in particular extremely afraid that they could be uh, weak, uh, you know, legislated and regulated as public utilities um, rather than just uh, private entities or private businesses that are able to do whatever they want, however they want. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up here. We've gone pretty long, there is so much more to dive into, but I think this I think this gives y'all a really good idea of who Lena Khan is, not just in terms of a profile of her 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 history or her as a young gun at the FTC or whatever, but no, Lena Khan is a very serious scholar uh, and 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 thinker who has you know quite radical. Uh, ideas, especially in the, you know, considering her position, uh, uh, quite radical for an FTC chair, um, combined with a very complex and critical analysis of the political economy of platforms. I mean, we'll talk a lot more about Lena Khan in the future for sure, especially as we keep track of what she actually does as FTC chair, um, keep track against the, uh, the you know the shots across the bow that uh, uh, right. Amazon and them are trying to throw at her right. I mean they are desperate. They are scrambling mm -hmm. right. They the you know Amazon's got their army of high paid lawyers just pulling out the most fucking like like throwing everything against the wall, just hoping that something fits right. Asking her asking 
the FTC to to make Lena Khan recuse herself from Amazon uh, decisions is is extremely funny and also backfiring in a in a really funny way as wow. well. Right. Eve Smith at Naked Capitalism had a had a nice roundup um, a couple weeks ago, saying, "You know, Amazon arrogance backfires. Tries to smear incoming FTC Chair Lena Khan as needing to recuse herself because she knows them too well." And uh, and in this piece on Naked Capitalism, Eve Smith like pulled out a bunch of comments from uh, uh, like on like the Wall Street Journal of you know articles about this comments from uh uh articles in the financial times um you know of of people just being like yo i like i you know i like amazon i think they're convenient i think they're cheap but this this shit is absurd this shit is ridiculous this is actually turning into like a like a really a uh, bad PR move on Amazon's position and and I think like I'm a lot of and I think like a lot of Amazon's recent like horrible PR moves I think uh-huh. that's because I would suspect that Jeff Bezos had a hand in it right yeah because he's like you yeah. need to do something about this and you know all the professional marketers and public relations people and lawyers at Amazon corporate are like like in their mind, they're like, this shit ain't going to work. But I didn't. But Jeff, but, but Jeff is making us do it. Uh, all right. And then it backfired. Nope. <laughs> and, uh, and it will keep backfiring yeah. over and over and over. For sure. For sure. Um, I think that's where we'll wrap it up. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, thank you for joining us on this journey into the mind of Lena Khan. Uh, and you know, you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills, um, for an, you know, another premium episode every single week. So until then later. Adios.